And I remember a very long conversation I had with, with Jack Bruce once on this very subject. Jack Bruce, as you know, was trained at the Royal Scottish yes. Academy of Music as a cellist. And uh, before he became a great bass guitar player. And he said the thing that kept occurring to him when he was at the Royal Scottish Academy of Music, before he really got involved in, in rock and roll, whatever it was, was there has to be something more than... I get lost here, whether it's eight bar, eight bar, eight bar, you know, right. eight bar, middle eight, <laughs> and reprise. Da, 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 da. You know, and, and, and in terms of structure, that was the problem, that they were forced into, or he felt that rock and roll musicians were being forced into a structure mm -hmm. of which their, their skill as performers just wanted to burst all those seams in every direction. And he also said... Uh, which, of course, is absolutely true, and we realise it now, that however much McCartney says, oh, we're just old rock and roll band, and he's talking absolute bollocks, as he does most of the time. Sorry, Paul. Um, <laughs> that, you know, this is very devious uh, harmonically. You know, mm. whether he did it instinctively or whether he's, there's a certain amount of awareness of what he's doing, I don't know what that balance is, but, my God, this is not um, uh, one, four, five, one, no. Uh, bit of six back to one four five one. It no. really isn't. No. So you've got on the one hand someone who's um, and Lennon exactly the same, enormously inventive harmonically. You've got others who are saying the structure is not enough for what we want to express, and not the least reason that the Cream were as great as they were um, uh, and are in some ways uh, is because you've got three guys who knew that. Mm. and were perfectly capable of going off on flights of fantasy. Of course, in their case, it's added by the fact they hated each other and they weren't going to allow <laughs> the other two to steal the show. Yeah. That's fine. That's, that's absolutely normal. The Beatles were very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Twenty nine. Twenty nine. Three, two, one. Can't these conditions, but we're, you know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that. We're like we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike. And this is what we're going through now, really. Is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've gone over so many songs, but I've got like my quota of tunes for the next ten years or album. discontent with the Beatles. Hello and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Welcome back to Season 3. It's hard to believe that I've made 20 of these episodes, considering the work that goes into each one. But your support and amazing feedback has inspired me to keep going. Believe me, when you compare the pile of discs I've covered so far, and the pile still to be worked on, it's a very daunting task. But I know you'll be with me as we navigate our way through and squeeze every drop of information we can from these recordings. My latest brilliant podcast recommendation, Strong Songs. Kirk Hamilton takes classic songs, including The Beatles' Day in the Life, and performs an in-depth analysis of what makes each song great. If you appreciate my explorations of songs being rehearsed on this podcast, you will love Kirk's approach, at once more musicological, but never so technical that it goes over your head. His love for the music he discusses is always apparent, and his explanations of what is really happening makes you appreciate the music in a whole new way. Check it out. We left the Beatles at the end of the 3rd of January, feeling relatively positive about their work in progress. There are a few red flags, but that's only viewed with the benefit of hindsight. In any case, you now have 19 episodes covering two days to binge on and follow the story so far. 
As ever, if you're new to the podcast, here is the summary of episode 19. The audio starts with the section used in the Let It Be film of Paul teaching the band Maxwell Silverhammer by calling out the chords as he plays through the song. This is only brief, and in the film it's cut with a later performance from a different day. John seems to know the song better than George, so it may have been run through during the writing sessions that produced I've Got a Feeling and Two of Us. As George queries the chord changes, Ringo suggests they keep going until they get it. Given his later opinion of the song, this is rather ironic. At this point, there is no dissent. John sings bits of the chorus in between run-throughs. George refers to it as a catchy chorus, so the song has potential for the live show. The only downside so far is that the song isn't finished. Paul hasn't written the section known as the tag that joins the chorus back to the verse. As Paul is on bass, he finds this even harder to work out, but they press on learning the verse and the chorus. George asks Paul to sing the words so he can read along on his lyric sheet and learn all of the chord changes. Again, as with two of us, Paul is able to juggle correcting chord changes, suggesting drum patterns, and singing and playing the song. At George's suggestion, they sing the chorus through twice each time. In the end, this will become an instrumental section, but the idea is a good one, and for once, Paul is amenable. While suggesting rhythm ideas to Ringo, asking him to emphasise the words bang bang on the kick drum, Paul remembers that he envisaged the sound of an anvil being struck for that part. He even suggests Malk play it on the show. Paul hints at the origin of the song by mentioning Steptoe and Son, a British sitcom whose theme music is quite similar. John, on the other hand, has his own ideas and sings the lyrics to the Bonzo Dog Band's Urban Spaceman to the Maxwell tune. These similarities just underline how contemporary the musical style of Maxwell Silverhammer actually was. As George plays the chords to the bridge wrongly again, Paul testily asks him to write them down. George calls for a pen. John is contributing more ideas on guitar than George at this point perhaps feeling liberated after a few hours on the Larry organ. Another run through, and Paul, now inspired by John's double stop guitar ideas, vocalises a guitar line that will eventually become part of the backing vocal on the finished song. As they struggle with the tag again, George offers to take over on bass if Paul wants to play the piano. Emboldened perhaps by John playing organ, after balking at the idea on the second, Paul agrees. George calls for the Fender's six-string bass. The tape cuts. In the next performance, Paul improvises the audio slate into his lyric. It's 6.10 and George is on the bass, feeling around for notes, often tunelessly, while Paul is on piano and John plays a competent lead. Paul takes the band through an atmospheric, almost spooky tag back to the verse, calling it dead music, which I suppose matches the theme of the song. He also vocalises the sound of a dulcimer, though he can't recall its name. He calls for the piano to be put through the PA. Ringo offers him a spare mic. When this is set up, Paul now can't hear his own vocal. As regards sound, you get the impression everyone is feeling their way. Another run through and Paul repeats the chorus, this time vocalising a solo instead of singing. The arrangement is beginning to come together. For the tag, Paul starts to envision an orchestra, which could potentially have been used in the show. Another run through and Paul tries a different tag, which they'll explore again later. George has another tag idea, playing a waltz part on the bass. They give it a try. Paul admits the song isn't finished. John thinks it needs another verse. George asks if the lyrics will resolve the story. Paul says yes they will. After a bit more tea room orchestra style jamming, Paul suggests they leave it there. George continues practicing the bass as the other Beatles wander off to chat, smoke and get ready to leave. He goes over that waltz time section and asks John if he recognises it from any other song. George wonders if it's a new idea or if he's copied it from somewhere else. You can hear Michael Lindsay Hogg talking to John and Ringo passively, seeing if they want to talk about the S-H-O-W, which he spells as if it's a dirty word. This leads to a lot of wordplay from Ringo and John and Paul, rather than a serious discussion as intended. 
Lynn Johns approaches George to ask about the Beatles' own eight-track recorders. We learn that the Beatles actually own three, and he relates a story about the Beatles lending one of their machines to EMI to compare it with their own, and how EMI just left it in the street when they returned it. Michael is trying to assess the MOOD of the Beatles regarding the project. He says, yesterday was a tiring day. Ringo too feels tired, but says, that's rock and roll. They discuss the fact that this is unusual working hours for them, but they all agree they just need to work to get inspired. George shouts after Ringo to listen to the Jackie Lomax album and think of a running order. Michael wishes everyone a nice W-E-E-K-E-N-D and the tape is turned off. The weekend obviously was not caught on tape. The Beatles were still young and hip, and with British television being what it was in those days, it's probable that they didn't stay home the whole time. Paul and Linda, along with little Heather and the two dogs, may have indulged in the usual pastime, Sunday driving, not arriving. John and Yoko had no family ties barring perhaps having Julian over to stay and didn't tend to hang out in nightclubs. All the same, they were free to dine out or visit friends. One thing John didn't spend any time doing was songwriting. This would add to the growing sense of frustration that would cast a shadow over this week's sessions. Ringo and Maureen would have had some family time. He may have looked at the scripts for The Magic Christian or talked about the production with Dennis O'Dell or Peter Sellers. He was definitely indulging himself on Sunday night. When he arrives at the soundstage today, he's clearly hinting about being hungover. George probably had the most eventful weekend. It's not certain, but it seems likely that his wife of nearly three years, Patty, moved out of their bungalow kinforns to stay with friends. She found the situation she was forced into with George and the unwelcome presence of Charlotte Martin intolerable. George's mood is understandably affected by his own personal issues, and this becomes apparent quite quickly. Monday the 6th of January is another chilly and drizzly day. Still a great deal milder than the same time the previous year when it snowed so heavily that Big Ben stopped for four hours. The news was dominated by the deadly crash that happened close to Gatwick Airport. Ariana Afghan's Flight 701 crashed into a private house during its descent to the runway in heavy fog. Everyone in the house was killed, along with the crew of the aircraft and all but 12 of the passengers. Although it was the deadliest crash in the airport's history, many papers chose to lead with the extraordinary story of the survival of a baby girl and the policeman who rescued her. On the inside pages of your daily paper, you could read about a boy who lost his legs tragically after leaping from a train, how the French authorities were clamping down on what they still referred to as beatniks, how a four-letter word had slipped out on a religious programme, a story that would have more of a long-term effect on British culture and multiculture was also reported today. The African nation of Uganda served notice on its 40,000 Asian residents. When General Idi Amin came to power in 1972, the Asian population was finally expelled. Dictator Amin stated at the time that God had told him to turn Uganda into a black man's country. Despite these new refugees being descendants of migrants from the British Empire, the United Kingdom was reluctant to welcome them to these shores. Leicester Council even went so far as to post adverts in Uganda asking the Asians not to come to Britain. Television on Sunday the 5th was the usual mixture of educational, religious and light entertainment programmes. In the afternoon you could tune into a broadcast of Billy Smart Circus featuring fabulous foot juggling, knockabout nonsense, aerial artistry and the paper tearing of Albert Sturm. In the early evening before the religious programmes you could be entertained by a puppet version of Pilgrim's Progress. Perhaps George and Charlotte watched the documentary Men at Work where men from all walks of life talk about their jobs and how many have come to resent their work. Popular drama series The Foresight Saga was on. 
starring Eric Porter and Susan Hampshire. Tonight's family movie was Lover Come Back, a satire of the advertising industry with Rock Hudson and Doris Day. Alternatively, on BBC Two, you could watch Music, 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 featuring the George Mitchell singers, TV's Black and White Minstrels, who appear tonight for the first time ever, barefaced. Di Francis of the group complained, It used to take days to get the makeup completely off. But the Radio Times is reassuring. They aren't throwing those tins of dark makeup away. They will need them again in the autumn when the new season of the minstrel shows begins. Then after the 10 o'clock news, Omnibus presents Cream, a recording of their farewell concert at the Royal Albert Hall, directed by Tony Palmer. Tony Palmer, like so many people working in the arts in the 1960s, had a Beatles connection. While still a student at Cambridge University, Palmer was asked by his college paper to attend a Beatles press conference. The band were performing at the Regal Cinema in town. He managed to make an impression on John Lennon, and the two struck up a friendship. Tony and John toured the campus together at John's insistence, though the Beatle had to disguise himself to avoid being recognised, sporting a fake beard and fedora. Although John made sure to give the young Palmer his phone number, it wasn't until several years had passed that they reconnected. Following his graduation, Tony joined the BBC and trained as an apprentice to both Ken Russell and Jonathan Miller. Palmer's film debut was focused on the composer Benjamin Britten. By this point, he had renewed his friendship with Lennon, who urged him to do something similar on the musicians of the day. It was his duty, said Lennon, to get people like Hendrix and Pink Floyd some serious coverage. Palmer protested that he didn't have an in with those bands, but John was insistent. I'll provide the introductions, you do everything else. The result was the groundbreaking mix of rock, music and politics, titled, by John of course, All My Loving. It featured Jimi Hendrix, Eric Burden, Pete Townsend of The Who, and it is thought that it was Lennon's decision not to feature the Rolling Stones. During 1968, Palmer gained access to a Beatles recording session to film rehearsals at EMI for their next single, Hey Jude. It was yet another event that was to influence the Get Back project, featuring as it did the band developing the song in the studio, but also highlighting a disgruntled George Harrison banished to the control room for playing lead guitar through the verses. Tony Palmer's Beatle Association continued. It was his review of the Double White album in the Observer newspaper that served as liner notes for the just-released Yellow Submarine soundtrack album, and subsequent to the Get Back sessions, he would be present on the set of The Magic Christian to film a documentary on its star, Peter Sellers. It was Palmer's work on All My Loving as well as his BBC credentials that led to his being commissioned by Eric Clapton to film the farewell concert by the band Cream. Cream's final performance, of the 60s at least, came at the end of a 19-city US tour. Two nights were booked at the Royal Albert Hall. The support acts were Yes, who hadn't released a record yet, and Rory Gallagher's Taste. The original concept for the project was for Palmer to film two shows to form a documentary and for a double live album to be released simultaneously. If this sounds familiar, It's not surprising, both Cream and The Beatles had released double albums in 1968. The next logical step seemed to be to release something visual to accompany their next project. Jimi Hendrix would also play two concerts at the Royal Albert Hall in February with a view to releasing a film and a live album. And he too was doing this as a follow-up to a double album. It does shine new light on John's comments on the 3rd of January that the Beatles should play their live show, then go straight into the studio and record an album, and then split. Was John thinking of Cream and perhaps admiring their decision to leave on a high with their reputation intact? It's an interesting idea. Of course, the real reason for Cream's decision to quit after just two and a half years was more a reflection of the dysfunction in their own ranks. Bad management, a crushing schedule, they played 300 plus gigs in those two and a half years. Unexpected fame and personal animosity all took their toll. Clapton stated, The workload was pretty severe. We were playing six nights a week and I lost weight until I was about nine stone and looked like death. 
At the core of the problem was the relationship between drummer Ginger Baker and bass player Jack Bruce. Eric continued, Ginger and Jack were dynamic characters and pretty overwhelming. It felt like I was in a confrontational situation 24 hours a day. Half my time was spent trying to keep the peace. And on top of that, you're trying to be creative and make music. I was calling home to Robert Stigwood saying, get me out of here, these guys are crazy. The Albert Hall concerts were their first in the UK for more than 10 months. Even then, these had been a handful of college gigs, which acted as a warm-up for their US tour. A tour which would ultimately break the band in more ways than one, propelling their album Wheels of Fire to number one, but permanently fracturing the band's relationship with each other. Another nail in the coffin for Cream was Eric Clapton hearing music from Big Pink by the band and sensing that Cream's freak-out solos and endless jamming on stage was becoming obsolete. And so on the 26th of November 1968, Tony Palmer supervised a hastily assembled camera crew of four static cameras and two handhelds, all recording to videotape, plus himself on 16mm film camera, to capture the last concert. The bulky BBC equipment made the logistics of camera placement without blocking the audience's view a bit of a challenge. The resultant documentary highlights the issue of the cameras being too close to their subject. One critic of the show summed up the production as too many close-ups of Jack Bruce's teeth and almost no wide shots of the whole band. The speed of the film's production did little to improve the quality of the finished documentary. A mere six weeks had passed between the show and the omnibus presentation. Continuity errors abound. Ginger Baker changes clothes mid-drum solo and Eric Clapton does the same trick with his guitars. To compound the poor shot composition, the camera crew opted to use the already dated effect of fast zooming in rhythm to the music, while during editing a murky psychedelic oil lamp effect was superimposed over some sequences. Pete Drummond's narration tried to convince the world in over-egged, semi-desperate tones that rock musicians are real musicians, honestly. Cream themselves were unhappy with their performance and better clips of the band live are available. They seemed tired and lacklustre at times. Ginger Baker commented later, It wasn't a good gig. Cream was better than that. Their performance was possibly hampered by the Albert Hall's notoriously bad acoustics at the time. The sound that made its way onto the TV screens was described by one critic as a turgid sonic sludge. Add to this the main focus of the Beatles' derision today. Three awkward interviews with Cream's individual members where the interviewer asks extremely banal questions about how guitars and drums work. Small wonder then that the documentary when aired opposite Rowan and Martin's laughing failed to maintain Ringo's attention for very long. So let's join Paul and the crew at Twickenham for the start of day three of the Get Back project. The tape starts with something you should all be familiar with by now. Eight, seven, this is roll 29, 29. Three, two, one. Tape cuts. Just a lot of studio ambience at the moment. Someone being paged sounds like Wynne Jones. Perhaps Wynne Jones is in fact Glyn Johns because you can hear Glyn's voice, I'm sure, saying, take his number. Yeah. 
This is roll ten. Tape cuts. Car children. <laughs> and tongue knob children. Yeah, yeah. This is me big owl. This is me little one. Paul and Michael discussing the interviews with the members of Cream in last night's omnibus documentary on the band. They're not impressed with the style of interviewing. But they're terrible. The, you know, the awful thing was that Ginger Baker has got a voice like that. And when they came to Ginger Baker, it was like a Peter Sellers sender of that kind of voice he used to do, you know? And he was doing like Tommy Steele. Michael thinks the Ginger Baker interview is the best of all, though he's not convinced his Cockney accent is entirely authentic. But it was just the way they did it, the people. When Ginger Baker was an interesting interview, because it's the only, like, I'm terribly uncoordinated, and I don't have a book on and I was really interested in the trolls. But the other stuff was really... I like Jack Bruce's interview. He's the only one that made any kind of other... I just thought they were interviewed badly. You know, the fellow with, with Eric when Eric played a bit. And the fellow says, can you do that again? Like... We don't have the cream show. Right, three-year-old right. kid, Paul thinks the questions were very poor. Um, but so. I thought... What I thought also was that the whole, the whole cast had signatures anyway is very old-fashioned. Terrible. Only work. Couldn't see anything. It only worked with the drummer, and they did some other things. But it does work with the drummer if you do it all the way through. Michael calls it old-fashioned. So it's really like. Remember that record, Barry? Was which one? One of the Ryan brothers at Eloise? Paul Ryan. Yeah. No, Brian. Uh, Barry. <laughs> Brian. Ryan. It was like. El the conversation drifts onto Barry Ryan's hit Eloise. Eloise is held up as an example by Michael of all form and no substance. Eloise, which was all, all form and no substance, which I like saying. Another little number. Glenn, how about that? All, Eloise was all form and no substance. Glenn Johns is dragged into the conversation, but he wasn't paying attention. Uh, sorry, I'm miserly. We're talking about Eloise, that fight for record that one of the Ryan brothers made. It's great, I thought. I hated it. All form and oh, no substance. Oh, I loved substance. it. Ah. Oh. I hated it. A brilliant like production. A show a All form and no production. substance. No one listens I, to my I, art. Uh, All I didn't form like, and no substance. I didn't like, I didn't like the record very much. Yeah, no, but you're too... That's, that's just too big a put-down. Paul likes it. Glyn appreciates the production. Michael fails to get his point across. I think he's trying to say that the song is lyrically shallow. But tellingly, Paul has no issue with that. Old form and... Barry Ryan, who Paul accidentally called Brian Ryan, had released the song Eloise in October of 1968. In the UK it peaked at number two in the charts. The reference to the Ryan brothers by Michael alludes to the fact that prior to this, Paul and Barry Ryan performed as a duo. Paul decided to step away from the limelight and concentrate on songwriting. Eloise was inspired by Richard Harris's recording of MacArthur Park. It was recorded at Glynn's favourite studios, IBC, and featured the talents of future Led Zeppelin members, Jimmy Page and John Paul Jones. Oh, I mean, it was, you know, really just, just one that came out of all the great <coughs> a bit interesting. Right. Very good arrangement. Right. The only bit I liked was the break. Like yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you're kidding. You're kidding. <laughs> great. Now I like. I like. Yeah. We got one. I'll tell you Yeah. Paul goes over to the piano to demonstrate a song, lamenting again that all the material the Beatles have brought to the sessions has been slow. Paul gives Michael and Glynn a performance of Oh Darling, as he did yesterday. Michael comments, OK, Fats Domino, seeing the inspiration. The ending of this performance is seen in the Let It Be film, as is this conversation, although in an edited form.
I'll go through an analysis of Oh Darling when we get the band performance. What was the one you were doing the other night? The last, that, uh, In the film, the conversation about Maxwell's silver hammer that follows is edited out. Here Paul describes Maxwell as like a Tom Lehrer song. I think it's great because I was so um, hooked on the other version. I never thought, especially so quick. Yeah, so, right. That's so gutsy to put it out so quick, I think. And this real B-A-W-L-S-Y has been saying on Friday to put it out that quickly. The conversation moves to Wilson Pickett's version of Hey Jude, also discussed on Friday. Michael making a reference to how they were spelling everything out on Friday and caused Pickett's decision to release the song B-A-L-L-S-Y. That's very brave, you know, soccer to him, Wilson. Yeah. <coughs> mm. The one I'm most pleased about, though, is one after 909. What's that one? Just the one we were doing the other day, one after 909. This part appears in the film, although Michael's failure to remember the song, One After 909, doesn't. Yeah, that was fantastic. That's great. Really? Great. Which one? Because I really well, never they, thought of that. For, they just you know, played. The first no one of the first songs we'd ever done. Right, it was John the Razor when he was 15 or something. So. Yeah. 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 It's just we always used to sag off every, you know, every school day, you know, mm. go back to my house, and the two of us would just sort of sit there and write, love me do, and... Mm. Too bad about sorrows, and there's a lot from them. You know, there's about a hundred mm. songs from them that we've never reckoned. Paul helping to build the Beatle myth with stories of the hundred songs John and Paul are supposed to have written pre-fame. Because they were all very unsophisticated songs. They said our love was just fun. The day that our friendship begun. Yeah, yeah. There's no blue moon that I can see. There's never been in history. Yeah. But you know, and we thought it's too much. <laughs> a quick rendition of the song Just Fun is also in the film. Just Fun is thought to be one of the earliest Lennon-McCartney co-writes in late 1957 or early 1958. Since this is a matter of a few months after the two became friends, the line, the day that our friendship begun, could be a subconscious reference to their relationship. We always hated the words of, of one after nine on nine. Baby said to travel on one after nine on nine. She said, move on, honey, I'm travelling on that line. <laughs> said, move over once, move over twice. Come on, baby, don't be cold as ice. <laughs> but they're great. Are they I great call songs? it move over, I think, in my book, <laughs> my notes. We learn that Glyn Johns has been taking notes and has labelled one after nine oh nine, move over. <laughs> great scene. And a little bit where he goes to E and John. Pick up my bags. <laughs> Ran to the station. But the I mean, like, I still... You got the wrong location. Tony Richmond, <laughs> a phone call for Tony Richmond, director of photography. I really <laughs> love it when, like, whenever on the radio, like, they play Fats Domino again or anything like that. Those records. Jody did you, have, did you get... Fats Domino's fantastic. Did you get his new album? Fats Domino. Fats mm. is back or something. With mm. Singy producing Richard Perry. Yeah. Fats is back is worth mentioning here because Fats Domino covers two Beatles songs. The fairly obvious Lady Madonna, but also Lovely Rita, which seems like an odd choice. What's the name of the guy? What's the name of Tiny Tim's... Um, who's the guy who's Tiny Tim's orchestra conductor? Isn't his name Richard Perry? A young guy? It might be. Might easily be, yeah, right. because he's, he's a young, young guy who comes out. But he's got in on something else. Tiny Tim's, which is a Camber, Campbell Silver Cosby organization that Tiny Tim is with, with tetragrammatons. What? What else has Richard Perry just done? He's done Fats is back. No, he's just done something else. I don't know. I've just read him on this. I just read the. I'm sure he's Tiny Tim's. I've seen him leaning over Fats' shoulder. Is he young? Say, thin? She dares I go, Fats. C to F. <laughs> <laughs> 
Discussion turns to Fats Domino and then his producer, Richard Perry, who will eventually work with Ringo. But like Tony and I were coming out in the car this morning listening to, they played Peggy Sue. And we, he said, isn't it funny how many Buddy Hollies came out after he was dead? Do you, I mean, like, do you have a lot in the can? Or just nothing in the can but a lot in your head? Mm. We, we've got like a... Decker have got a few of them, apparently. Decker? But I don't think they can... Decker? Decker yeah, they've the audition got, they, tapes? Yeah. So they could probably get, do something with them if we kicked it. <laughs> they've got a live concert at the Andrew Hollywood Bowl. This is wild. And Andrew's always, wild. Made, always used to make remarks about... You know, he's got, he's got everything. I mean, any time anybody did anything, record it. <laughs> As we now know, there's a huge archive of unreleased Beatles material at this point. Paul can only think of the Decca audition and the live at the Hollywood Bowl recordings. Glyn relating a story about Stone's manager and immediate label boss Andrew Lug Oldham, who keeps everything recorded by his artists. As Glyn puts it, you never know when they're going to go. I mean, with everybody, even like with twice as much, you know. Like <laughs> I loved it, but I loved the songs he did with them. I really did. Oh, yeah. Twice as much. Great, great. I love Step Out of Line. Great production. Twice as much were a musical duo composed of Dave Skinner and Andrew Rose. Their only UK top 40 hit was a cover of Jagger Richards' composition, Sitting on a Fence. Of the two, Skinner enjoyed the longest musical career eventually touring with Roxy Music in 1977-78 and has contributed to albums by Phil Manzanera and Brian Ferry. I heard Sergeant Pepper. Do you like it in yeah. retro? Yeah. Yeah, it's great. Wow, it's that audience laughing just at the beginning. <laughs> Paul, looking to inspire himself, listened back to Sergeant Pepper for thoughts about how a live album could sound last night. It's just the idea that I was, you know, this'll get into something like that. Once we, how near are we to getting the stuff in? Should be in today with any of that. I've got bits and pieces coming from NBC. And George's eight track coming and I, uh, EMI's gear should be here. Because uh, I haven't thought of it like a record yet, this. Pardon? I haven't thought of this like a record Well, yet. maybe it's a good job you haven't. Yeah. Right? Michael is wanted on the phone. The idea of the record should be a, a live show, a live performance, you know, and that's the way you should be thinking of it. And the fact it's okay. being recorded is rather like a, not an afterthought, but yeah. I mean, it's something but you it's like, think about. That's, that's the only thing, when I heard Sergeant Pepper last night, I thought, oh, that's, so that's what live performances could be like. <sighs> you know, even though that was a lash-up, that wasn't yeah, a live performance. Yeah. But just the things like, like that, something coming on where, you, where there's a laugh, and you don't know what they've laughed at. <laughs> yeah, that was that was Glyn has taken the easier option and used the Beatles' eight-track recorder rather than confront EMI as George wanted him to. Are you going? Are you going to be using these amps? Do you think? Don't know. Tell us what you think of them, you know. I've, you I've, I've, so far, I think the sound is fabulous. Really good, really good. Really good. And they'd be plenty loud enough for some, somewhere this, this size. Isn't it? Great. So, I mean, you, you know, you just tell us what you think on that kind of scene, because, you know. There's, there's a couple of points where we black out. Paul's expectation of Glyn is that he'll tell them what equipment they should be using. And things like that, you know. It's like, you wouldn't think of changing them. That might be it. Well, it's just so rare to see a, see a brick using small amps, you know, which really people should do. Because, you know, so few groups now have special equipment for recording. Mm -hmm. like small amps recording, they all come in. Why do you mean small amps? Well, because big, big amps, the, the big... Just dissipate. ...are so enormous, they have to turn them up so loud to get any decent sound out of them, the sort of sound they want. Yeah. It isn't really good for recording. This sort of thing is, is the, the ideal. Right, because the great sound is on the verge of distortion, isn't it? Yeah, right. Great sound, yeah, but it doesn't you're, actually you're, distort. No, exactly. You, you just overload the amplifier just a little bit. Mm. I don't know if you remember, but Townsend was, went on the on the Stones thing, 
and oh, it was yeah. in two big cabinets. And he, he tried using them both, but mm. decided that he, he wasn't make, they, but using two big speakers, they weren't distorting quite enough, so he just took one of them out and overloaded just one mm. to get the sound. Glyn relates an anecdote about Pete Townsend and how he had big amps and speakers on stage at the Rock and Roll Circus, but in fact was only plugged into one of them. They play very loud anyway, don't they? Yeah. Like Hendrix. Yeah. They really freaked out on that thing. They were so good, the Who and that. That number's good as well. It was the opera. Praise for the Who's performance on the show. The Who famously upstaged the Rolling Stones on their own show. It's reasonable to assume that's Tony Richmond talking there, since he was director of photography for the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus. Nice. got the kids going, Fireman, what? Fireman Bill, wasn't it? Oh, I have the engine driver. The they are so good. I mean, Pete is so good. I mean, he's a. I love his songs. I love what they do. And they're a yeah. great act. That drummer's great to watch, isn't it? Okay. Mm -hmm. The original show drummer. So, well, where, where did that water come from? I don't know. He must have had a mug of it. Which was he spilt or. Oh, did fantastic. It, uh, you get the mug of water. Insane. At, this is at the end of the number, the final build up of the video. He throws it in the, on the snare drum skin, fills the top of the snare drum up with water. And I suppose it'd be about that deep. And he plays the drum and he And the water just goes everywhere. And there's this ridiculous shot. Uh, it looks, at first, when I saw it Sequence. on a small screen, I thought, Gold I, thought, I, thought, I thought he was perspiring a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, no, that's impressive. I thought the sequence come off his costume. Spray of Fantastic. But I love the kit. Have you seen the kit that Premier has made for it? Uh, all chrome. Yeah. Chrome. And everybody's got like 90,000 pieces, too. It looks like yeah. a, a, an erector set. <laughs> Meccano drums. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he really throws those sticks about, doesn't he? And everything. everything. Keith Moon had a roadie pour water onto his snare and floor tom-tom drums for the finale, creating this eye-catching spray of water all around him as he pounded on the kit. Glynn assumed it was sweat at first. Michael thought it was sequins from his costume. Michael relates an anecdote about Keith Moon's bad behaviour, which is funny, I guess, if you weren't on the receiving end of one of his pranks. They were so shooting people. <laughs> We'd added a promotion film, they shot the commissioner <laughs> with a pellet gun and, the and, and blinded the extra. <laughs> so they're sitting at the extra, with, you know, like I was lining up a three shot on them. And then Pete disappears, it was a two shot. And then Keith went into another room where the extra was sitting, he's playing a cop to come in, and he sprayed the whole room with a fire spray. I mean, really crazy foam, but that awful thing, and the guy was blind, and it was really disastrous, isn't it? Good picture, though. I like them. This is a reference to the groundbreaking promotional film for The Who's single, Happy Jack, which Michael directed in December 1966. I like Kit and Chris, too. Kit and Chris with the Who's management. Good hustlers. Nice going. We'll see you then on Saturday. At the wedding. I'll be around. Good Another reference to the wedding on Saturday. If that voice is Tony Richmond, which it seems to be as he's the link with Glyn and Michael and the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, then I'm struggling to find any reference to his getting married in January 1969. He was married later to Jacqueline Smith of Charlie's Angels fame. What I found during research was that a Peter Sutton had got married in early 1969 in Newcastle. And that's where Peter Sutton hails from. The jury's out. You know, you know how they, they save the whole audience situation at the end of the show with the stands? They were being so tired and they just went down and saw this TV show in Paris mm. on New Year's Eve, and they were on that, and they did exactly the same thing there. They were digging about in the front of the oh, well, they dressed up, they, they, they looked like mums of the Ku Klux Klan. That's a reference to the capes that the audience were asked to wear for the filming. Seats I was worried about that. Morning! Morning. <laughs> Good morning. <laughs> Good morning. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> <laughs> More familiar clips. Ringo has arrived. 
a little worse for wear, and at this point, we'll leave it for now. I received another email. As you know, I love getting your feedback. I hope that we can eventually build some kind of community together. This is from Steve Clark. Hi Nick, really love the podcast. Want to share my personal origin story related to the Get Back Sessions. Here's something I wrote about a decade ago. It explains why I'm so obsessed with your podcast. I was roughly three years old when the Beatles split up. My sister, six years older, broke the news. It was a vague concept because, as a three-year-old, the construct of a rock band made no sense. But somehow I knew that they were at once together, and that day they were apart. We had three of their records laying around the house. Some boys liked construction sites, others liked trains. My obsession was records. We had the first American release, Meet the Beatles, the Beatles' second album, and Let It Be. Literally one of my first memories on this planet is listening to Side 2 of Let It Be on a plastic record player while staring obsessively at the three album covers. The record player was plugged into the wall behind a chair in our living room. As so many young kids do, I had built a nest with my favourite things, like my blanket. I went off into a fantasy land with the Fab Four. My infant brain could somehow piece together their history. I could connect the dots and identify the early albums and distinguish them from the later ones. Hair grows longer over time. At first I predicted that they'd been making records for about a decade, but that was just an arbitrary number. Maybe because my parents had been married in 1959, I assumed that that was the year the world started. A three-year-old kid can't read or understand the copyright date on the record covers. Only pictures. Short hair was from the 50s, long hair was from the 60s. Let It Be was the long-haired Beatles, therefore the other records had to be from the 50s. Within a few years, I'd learned the truth that they recorded nearly every song we know between 1963 and 1969, a mere six years. All I had were three albums that represented the bookends of an unprecedented run. There was no historical context that understood the Ed Sullivan show, the significance of Sgt Peppers, or why there was a Japanese woman sitting on the lap of the guy with the glasses. Sitars, the Maharishi, Bigger Than Jesus, LSD or Paul's Death Hoax. All I knew was there were three guys playing guitars and another guy on the drums. There were wires all over the floor and microphones. They all looked very focused. I must have made a connection to the sounds I heard from the record player's speaker. It had been created and recorded by these guys using the things in their hands. How did I know it was guitars, drums and singing? It all seemed so natural. While it would be decades before I'd be in a college philosophy class, it seemed as though creating music with three of your best friends was a perfect extension of the human condition. It was what we were all born to do. In my short life, the Beatles were always there. It's as if those who were born into evangelical homes always assume that Jesus is with them. The Beatles were always with me, armed with the knowledge that they had broken up and not quite knowing what that meant. I knew somehow that they would always be here on my record player. And yet, witnessing them as four clean-cut boys from what I perceived to be the late 1950s to wise and seasoned men of the late 60s, I learned the greatest fact of life. All things age, and all things must pass. The evolution of these four musicians represented a coming of age. In 1963, they all looked the same, dressed in their matching suits and matching hair. The band in 1969 were distinctly different people, not just individually, but distinct from each other. There was a guy with a beard, one with lighter hair and glasses, and the other two had long hair and moustaches. The earlier albums had them posing together playing their instruments as a team, where the whole was greater than the sum of its parts. The last record depicted them almost ignoring each other. I didn't understand then that this was the great story of the Beatles. They began as a strong unit, they drifted off into experimentation and were drawn apart by nature's awesome force that leads each of us to pursue the things that please us most. George pursued Eastern philosophy and religion. John loved art and expression and later worked as a political activist. Paul and Ringo stuck with music. But naturally, they couldn't stay together. Man needs a mate, in the truest and physiological sense. And they couldn't realistically be mates with each other, in the American sense. So nature tore them apart. 
not money, not Yoko. The three-year-old in his day fort, behind the chair in the suburban Long Island living room, had not heard the psychedelic era, or the White Album that perfectly symbolised the later, mature Beatles, torn apart by time and nature. The White Album is considered four solo albums at a time when there was four men coming of age in an extraordinary way. This kid had no idea how the band regrouped to work so strongly together on their last album, the awesomely beautiful Abbey Road. As I obsessed over my Beatle records, Lennon was writing and recording his brilliant solo work Imagine. Harrison's equally amazing triple album All Things Must Pass was also in the works. George would be the first and the last Beatle to score a number one solo hit. He hit the top spot in 1971 with My Sweet Lord and again in 1987 with I've Got My Mind Set On You. Both years were significant in my life. This would set the course for my life, always working for something beyond this moment. As the four Beatles appeared to be doing as they looked so focused on recording in the Let It Be album photos, but it also set off the world view that I had to be famous to be loved. In the great film Nowhere Boy, a young Liverpudlian inspired by American rock and roll tells his girlfriend that he wants to be the next Elvis Presley. She responds by asking, why don't you just become the next John Lennon? Maybe it was the idol worship thing. Maybe it was something beyond all that. But my hours of listening to Beatle records alone as a young child taught me that there's something more to music than the sounds coming from the speaker. Music was more than a representation. Music was life itself. Thank you, Steve, for taking so much time to write that down. It reminded me of my childhood and our cheap plastic record player and a box full of singles. Somehow, through the surface noise and the tinny speakers, Beatle records just had a certain magic about them and seemed to take you to a different place. In those days, it meant so much more than just the music. If you'd like to share your Beatle or Get Back related stories, the email is winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.